So a couple of questions. In the Samanyapala Sutta, the Buddha describes one of the fruits of the spiritual life as the ability to fly cross-legged through the sky like a bird with wings. That sounds fun. (laughs) I've seen it in the Chinese movies, but where can I enroll in flying school? (laughs) P.S. I would like to be able to walk through walls too. Any tips? Well, the walking through walls part is actually fairly easy. You find a door. (laughs) If you want to walk on water, I suggest Sweden in January. There's a Tibetan story about a young man who studied with the master for a while. And uh, and his master sent him out to practice on his own. You know, live in a cave, do intensive practice. And over the next 20 years, he learned to walk on water. Take a shortcut into town when he went on alms round. One day he was in town and he heard that his master was coming for a visit. And so he goes back to his cave and spiffs it up or whatever you do when you have visitors coming to your cave. And sure enough, a couple days later his master shows up. They have a joyful reunion. And then eventually his master says to him, well, what have you learned in these 20 years? And he stands up all proud and he walks down to the river, walks across to the other side, turns around, walks back comes back to his master. His master says, you fool, you wasted 20 years of your life. There's a bridge a quarter mile upstream. So, maybe you can fly through the sky like a bird. Well, I guess I did getting here, right? But uh, it doesn't seem like it's a useful pursuit. There's a bridge a quarter mile upstream. So that's really about all I can tell you. Don't waste your time. There are stories that are difficult to believe that appear in the suttas, like supernatural powers, rebirths, like talking animals. Are these to be considered just stories, dreams, or to be taken seriously? The suttas are a large body of work. And you find pretty much anything you want to in there. I can show you suttas that are internally self-contradictory. I can show you two suttas that teach just the opposite. And when approaching the suttas, I think probably the best thing to do is don't take any of it too seriously. Instead, try and figure out what the Buddha is suggesting that you do. Right? And then look at a lot of suttas. And when you find the instructions being repeated in many different circumstances, the same instructions, go practice that. And leave the rest of it as, well, stories. I have no idea whether people could fly cross-legged through the sky or walk on water or animals could talk or any of this other stuff. I wasn't there. Or if I was, I obviously wasn't paying attention or I wouldn't be here now, right? (laughs) So, uh, and I don't think that's what's important. 
One of the most important things on the spiritual path is being comfortable with, I don't know. So if you come across some story in there that seems a little unbelievable, put it in the category of, I don't know. You know, you don't have to know. Just be comfortable with, I don't know. And look for what the Buddha is telling you to do in terms of the actual practice and do the practices. That's probably your best bet rather than try and figure out exactly what all this stuff means. So tonight what I want to do is talk about the higher jhanas, jhanas 5, 6, 7, and 8. The first four jhanas are sometimes referred to as the rupa jhanas. Rupa means materiality. They're given this name not because the jhanas are material, they're mental states, obviously, but because they are experiences the likes of which we have had in the material world. All of us have experienced rapture, happiness, contentment, quiet stillness. But these are a more refined set of experiences. So sometimes you hear them referred to as the fine material jhanas or the refined material jhanas. There's actually a simile in the Vasudhimaga for the first four jhanas. You're lost in the desert. You don't have any water. This is a pretty serious position. You come over a little rise, and there in the distance you see what might be palm trees. It might be an oasis. You head towards them. They don't disappear. You begin to get kind of excited. As you draw nearer, you encounter people. They have wet hair. They have bundles of wet clothing. It's an oasis. You get really excited. First John. You come to the oasis. It's beautiful. There's all this clear water. You are so happy. Second John. You drink the water. You get in. You cool off. You get cleaned up. You get out. You are contented. Third John. And then you lay down in the shade of a tree and have a rest. Fourth jhana. This is pretty accurate. This is what it feels like, this excitement and happiness and then contentment and a quiet stillness. But the higher jhanas are referred to as the arupa jhanas, the immaterial absorptions, because they're not like anything you have experienced in regular life. The first four jhanas have actual names, first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. The next jhanas have more elaborate names. I'll read you what is probably one of the most detailed descriptions of the higher jhanas. Don't get your hopes up. Here, by passing entirely beyond bodily sensations, by the disappearance of all sense of resistance, and by non-attraction to the perception of diversity, seeing that space is infinite, one reaches and remains in the sphere of infinite space. So the official name for the fifth jhana is the sphere of infinite space, 
or the realm of infinite space, the place of infinite space. By passing entirely beyond bodily sensations. So another reason for calling these the arupa jhanas is that there's no more sense of the body. Rupa can also mean body. So passing beyond materiality or sensing of materiality. In other words, your concentration has now gotten strong enough that you're not really aware of your body. And by the disappearance of all sense of resistance and non-attraction to the perception of diversity, seeing that space is infinite, one reaches and remains in the sphere of infinite space. Probably the best way to explain that is to give you the instructions for entering the fifth jhana. So you're in the fourth jhana, the place of quiet stillness, the place of deep equanimity. Many people find that when they're in the fourth jhana, there's a tendency to sort of slump over. It's just so quiet and peaceful that you don't really have that much energy to hold yourself upright. Now, this means if you're peeking and you see somebody slumped over, you should not think they have fallen asleep. You should think, oh, how nice, they're in the fourth jhana. Of course, if they snore, they give it away. (laughs) Okay, so if you're slumped over, if your energy's down, straighten yourself up, get your energy back up. And then you need to find something you can expand. What Ayakema told me was get in touch with the boundaries of your being and then expand them to fill the room. And once you've got them expanded to fill the room and got that nice and steady, then expand them to fill all of Gaia House. And when you've got that, expand them to fill this area around here, West Ogwell. When that's all nice and steady, then expand them out further and further to the horizon and beyond. Just keep this expansion going. Stay focused on this sense of outward expansion. You get beyond the perception of diversity as you keep going. At first, there's the room... Gaia House, the grounds, West Ogwell, eventually the horizon and beyond. And when you get to the horizon and beyond, there's nothing, no diversity to pay attention to. You don't go to the moon and then to Mars and Jupiter. Just expand. Just let the expansion just keep going. And the expansion needs to go with no sense of resistance, just a nice, smooth sense of things getting bigger, 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 bigger. If you can stay focused on the sense of outward expansion, then a vast, empty space will appear before you, just open up before you. Don't look for the space. If you're looking for the space, you're not focused on the sense of outward expansion and you won't find the space. You have to stay focused on the expansion. And then the space appears. When the space appears, drop the attention on the expansion, put your attention on the spaciousness of this infinite space. Now the space, if you're a visual person, you will see it. 
most people describe it as either an off-white or a light gray, sometimes as a horizon line, white above, light gray below, uh, or they describe it as black, like outer space, but no stars, galaxies, planets, nothing of that, just big black space. It's sort of like you're walking across the Arizona desert, you know, not much to pay attention to, just sand, cactus, and suddenly you come to the Grand Canyon. Ooh, big space. Only this time there's no bottom and there's no other side. It's just a huge sense of spaciousness. If you're not a visual person, then you're not likely to see the space, but you'll you'll know that it's a big space. Uh, since I'm very visual, I don't quite understand how the kinesthetics and the auditories experience the space. But that's what they report, that they know that they are perceiving this vast space. Now, I said expand the boundaries of your being. This is what Ayakema told me, and it works but it doesn't really matter what you expand. I had one student who was very imaginative. She took an imaginary balloon and started blowing it up. Bigger, 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 and just focused on the expansion of the balloon until it popped and there was a space. She was also the one who took a flashlight, a torch beam, and followed it further, 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 until it illuminated the space. I've had people describe riding elevators, uh, anything that you can expand will work. The trick is to stay focused on the expansion. In general, you want the expansion to go in a direction you can symmetrically move your arms. So out to the side, in front of you, up. Most common is probably up and out. Don't worry about trying to expand it in all directions. That's too complex. Just pick two symmetrical directions and just go with it and stay focused on the expansion. Just like when you are trying to enter the first jhana, you're focused on the pleasure, but that's not the first jhana. It's when the piti and sukha arise and sustain. That's the first jhana. Here it's when the space appears and you can put your attention on it and stabilize it. So you want to be able to enter the first, the fifth jhana, the sphere of infinite space, and maintain it for, again, 10, 15 minutes. And when you get good at it, then, by passing entirely beyond the sphere of infinite space, seeing that consciousness is infinite, one reaches and remains in the sphere of infinite consciousness. The instructions are getting sparse. Okay, the sixth jhana is the sphere of infinite consciousness or the realm of infinite consciousness. The trick to moving to it, all right, you've got this vast space. When the fifth jhana is working well, there's a tiny sense of an observer observing the space before them. Sometimes it's below and behind 
depending on how deep the experience is. But there's a tiny observer and a huge space that's being observed. The trick to move to the six is to realize that you cannot perceive an infinite space or an infinite anything with a limited consciousness. It takes an infinite consciousness to be conscious of an infinite space. So the trick to move to the six is to shift your attention from the space to your consciousness of the space. Become conscious of your consciousness. Become aware of your awareness. It's sort of a turning back. When you do so, it will feel as though you are becoming absorbed into the space and then you become an infinite consciousness. It's like your mind gets very big. It, it, it doesn't have any bounds. It's... Often people describe it as dark, but again, the, the colors are idiosyncratic and it doesn't matter. And you just sit there with an infinite mind. Now, you're quite concentrated at this point, so luckily it's not full of infinite thoughts or anything like that. It's just a very big mind. If this works really well, if you get into the sixth jhana very deeply, it may be possible that you have the experience that there are other consciousnesses within this consciousness. You know, a few other consciousnesses over here and a couple more over there. It's not that you can read the minds of the other people in the room or anything like that. That's just what the experience feels like, that there are other consciousnesses within this consciousness. If you come from a spiritual tradition where the goal of the spiritual path is union with Atman, union with a higher self, it may be if you experience the sixth jhana, you think you've accomplished the goal, right? Infinite consciousness, it's me, I've done it, right? Well, no, you're just in the sixth jhana, that's all. It just feels like the experience is an experience of having an infinite consciousness. There's no Atman there. So you hang out for 10, 15 minutes focused on the sense of an infinite consciousness. And by passing entirely beyond the sphere of infinite consciousness, seeing that there is no thing, one reaches and remains in the sphere of no-thingness, the sphere of nothingness. After being in the sphere of infinite consciousness for an extended period, the sense of space is gone. To move to the seventh jhana, what you want to do is shift your attention from the consciousness to the content of that consciousness. What is this infinite consciousness conscious of? Nothing. You just 
Don't find anything it's conscious of. There's a sense of nothing. Put your attention on the nothing. At first, it may be sort of a small nothing. All right, but just hang in there. It'll get to be a bigger nothing. Nothing over here, nothing over there, nothing back there. It doesn't have the infinite feel, but it if you can sort of sense where the boundaries ought to be, yeah, there's nothing there and nothing over there. Most people describe this in one of two ways, either as very dark, black, deep purple, dark blue, or they describe it well, like you turn your TV to where there's no channel and you get the black and white snow, right? Imagine black and black snow, right? It's just this sense of movement. You can't see what's moving, but there's this sense of movement there. The seventh jhana manifests in one of these two ways most of the time. But there's this overriding sense there's nothing, just nothing. Now, the nothing is not the same as the emptiness that's talked about so much in the Mahayana tradition. This nothing is like you take the top off the biscuit jar and you look in and there's no biscuits. In fact, there's nothing, right? Just nothing. Like, well, in this room right now, there's a lot of stuff. There's cushions and mats and people and tables and chairs and Buddha statues and flowers, right? All right, let's say that tonight while you're asleep, somebody comes in and they take all of it out and you come in in the morning and you go, there's nothing here. <laughs> that nothing, right? Just nothing. People who stumble into this state accidentally are usually pretty freaked out. People do stumble into the jhanas out of order, and even sometimes they're sitting there doing vipassana and they stumble into the seventh jhana. I know this because I've had several students come to me and say, can I tell you about something happened to me? I was on the three-month course at IMS, and I was just sitting there doing vipassana several months into the course. In other words, they were very concentrated, and I fell into the void. Because that's what it feels like. I mean, there's nothing. If you're going from zero to the seventh jhana, you got to be pretty concentrated. So that means when you hit the seventh jhana, you hit it really strongly. There's a lot of concentration behind it. And there's this huge sense that there's nothing. It may feel as though you are suspended in the void. There's nothing before you or above you or beside you or below you or behind you. Kind of scary. Most people report being terrified. And so they eventually get out of it and they go running to the teacher. And the teacher gets them calmed down, has them eat some food, take a shower, maybe don't meditate for a day or two. And I say, well, you know, it sounded to me like it was the seventh jhana. Well, I don't know what it was. I don't want to go back there. <laughs> oh, no, no, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. So, okay. So they start learning the earlier jhanas, and they work their way up five, six. And they come, and okay, all right, now here's how you get to seven. Oh, I don't know if I want to go back there. No, it'll be all right. It'll be all right. Just, you know, relax. So they screw up their courage, and they go try and find some nothing, and sure enough, right back to where they were, 
Only this time, it's not scary at all. The fear arose not from the state of mind, but from not knowing what was happening. Fear of the unknown. Actually, the seventh jhana is, is a pretty nice place to hang out. It's, it's definitely my favorite jhana. I mean, nothing going on. It's, it's very nice. Okay, so you're hanging out with the nothing. Oh, more about the nothing. It's somewhat like you go down into the basement of the house and you turn on the light, only it doesn't work. And you're trying to see what's in the basement. And you can see there's nothing in front of you. Right? And then your eyes get a little more accustomed. There's nothing over there. There's nothing over here. Why, there's nothing down here at all. (laughs) This is actually the closest to the experience of entering deeply into the seventh jhana from the six. At first, there's a little bit of nothing. And then it gets to be nothing here at all. So you hang out for a while in the seventh jhana, 10, 15 minutes. You need a good seventh jhana before you can try the eighth. And by passing entirely beyond the sphere of no-thingness, one reaches and remains in the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception. Okay, neither perception or non-perception. Perception is a translation of the Pali word sanya. Sanya is the ability to identify things. You look up here and you can see, oh, there's a plant, there's a Buddha, there's Kuan Yin, there's a person, there's a microphone, there's a table. You put names on things. You go out into the world and you're like, that's the grass, that's my car, all right? You're identifying things. So the seventh jhana is a state where there's neither identification nor not identification, neither naming nor not naming. This is the eighth jhana. I guess that doesn't help a lot either. Kind of hard to talk about the eighth jhana. Um, well, because it doesn't have any characteristics that you can identify. That's the not the the neither perception part. So no identifiable characteristics. But it's not non-perception because you can identify you're in the state that has no characteristics. I know this isn't really clear. (laughs) It's really hard to talk about it. Um, The good news is that if you have a nice, solid seventh jhana, it actually is fairly easy to find the eighth jhana. Okay, so you got this big nothing, right? Let the nothing collapse and come to rest in front of your face and see if your mind enters a state that doesn't have any characteristics that you can identify, and yet you can know that you are in this state that doesn't have any characteristics you can identify. If so, probably that's the eighth jhana. The eighth jhana is much more fragile than the previous jhanas. In the previous jhanas, you have the 
factor of the jhana and you have the one-pointedness, right? Your concentrated focus on that factor. So in the third jhana, you've got the contentment and your one-pointedness, all right? And it's possible that you might slip off a bit, right? Start thinking. The contentment starts to fade, but you can get back before it goes away, right? You slip off, you know, oop, oop, right? Get it going again. You can even do that in the seventh jhana. You know, you, you're slipping off slightly and the nothingness doesn't disappear. You better get back pretty quick. With the eighth jhana, pretty fragile. You might get in one sentence as long as the sentence doesn't contain the words I, me, or mine. Right? It's very fragile. It'll break up quite easily. I had been practicing the eighth jhana for quite a while before I ever got into it and knew that I could stay in it for as long as I wanted to. It probably took a year of practice before I got that good with it. Most often what happens, I get into the eighth jhana, yep, definitely, this is it, great, hanging out there, and then I find myself in the middle of some discursive paragraph on whatever, you know, how did I get here? Where did the eighth jhana go? There's no trace of it, right? I got to go back to seven or maybe even back to five to get it going again. All of these higher jhanas will deepen your concentration. They are more subtle objects than the previous jhanas. The jhanas are arranged with increasing subtlety of object. The first jhana, all that piti, that's not subtle at all, okay? But it gets a bit more subtle as you get into the second, and it's the happiness. Calms down some more to the contentment, and then to the quiet stillness. Quiet stillness is, is a subtle object. But it's even more subtle when you move on to infinite space, infinite consciousness, into nothing, and then finally into even less than nothing. And so by having the concentration strong enough to stay with these increasingly subtle objects, the concentration increases, making it possible to get to the next subtle object. And then eventually, having gotten as concentrated as you can, you step out of the highest number jhana you know, and begin doing your insight practice. Now, the eighth jhana sometimes is not so useful for insight practice because you've gotten so quiet that, well, some practices aren't, aren't so useful. It's hard to do them, especially the ones that have words associated. So coming out of the eighth jhana, going to the five daily reflections... I mean, you might say one of the reflections, I am of the nature to grow old. I've not gotten beyond aging. And nothing happens. I mean, you're just there. You're so quiet. So in that case, if you're going to do a practice that has words associated with it, probably better to go back to seven, get it stabilized again, and then step out. But other practices such as choiceless awareness, um, paying attention to the arising and ceasing of phenomena, uh, second foundation of mindfulness, paying attention to Vedana. 
those practices can work fairly well coming out of the eighth jhana because there's no words or anything associated with it. So the higher jhanas are to help you get to a more concentrated state. More concentration, clearer, sharper, brighter, more malleable, more wieldy, more imperturbable so that you can do your insight practices even deeper. There is a state that is sometimes referred to as the ninth jhana. The official name of this ninth jhana, so-called, is the cessation of feeling and perception. Naroda Vedana Sanya, right? It's a state of suspended animation. It's not really the ninth jhana. It's never referred to as the ninth jhana in the suttas. I assume that comes in in the Abhidhamma or the later commentaries. I'm not sure where. But it's a state where you are so withdrawn from the world, so deeply concentrated that you are not experiencing any sensory input. There's no vedna, no pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and no perception, no identifying what's going on. It's said that if you are at the third level of enlightenment or fully enlightened, it's possible to enter this state for up to a week. I don't know that much more about the state, except a few years ago, I believe it was 2001, there was a festival in India called the Kumbhamaya Festival. Um... 12 million people came, 20 million, I can't remember. A bunch of folks showed up, right? And they made a documentary on this. I've forgotten the title of the documentary, but it was very good. It was quite an interesting documentary. And one of the things they showed was they dug a deep pit, and this woman from, I can't remember what it was, Hong Kong or Taiwan, climbed down a ladder into the pit, and then they put tin roofing material over it and then covered it with dirt and they left her down there for three days and then they uncovered it and she climbs out all smiling and happy she obviously was in the state of Nerona that's probably about the only way you're going to wind up having a good time while you're buried in a pit the other the other time I knew a little bit about Naroda, as this state is usually called. I was once in Thailand for Thai New Year's. Thai New Year's takes place at the end of the hot season and the beginning of the rainy season. It's April, and they do their spring cleaning. And among the things they do would be to wash the Buddha statue at the shrine. Any Buddhist, any Thai Buddhist household would have a shrine with a Buddha statue, and so they would wash the statue. And the custom developed that you would take some of the water from washing the statue of the Buddha, and you would sprinkle it on the hands of your elders to salute their Buddha nature. Well, in modern times, the sprinkling has gotten a bit out of hand, and for three days, everybody in the country is throwing buckets of water on everybody else in the country. 
It's a very participatory festival. You step outside your guest house door and you're greeted with a bucket of water. Of course, it's 35, 40 degrees out, so no problem. It's uh, kind of refreshing. So anyhow, I was in Chiang Mai for this festival, the place where it really is probably the center of the activities. And I went down to the main square on the first day of the festival. Now, this is a pretty chaotic place. Uh, in the road that passes by, there are people there throwing buckets of water in the windows of the passing buses. And if you have a car window down, uh-oh, you're going to get a bucket of water in. And people on motorbikes are going to get drenched. And, you know, there's a lot of whooping and hollering. And it's a pretty... Well, it's not exactly a place where you'd think to go to meditate. But in the main square, off to one side, there was a little pavilion that had been built. And sitting there in the pavilion was a monk. His eyes were downcast and open. He was in full lotus. He had his hands in the traditional meditation posture. And he had the most serene look on his face that I have ever seen. It was actually quite inspiring to see him sitting there in meditation in the midst of all this chaos. He was still there when the big parade came through that afternoon. He was still there that night when they had the beginnings of the beauty pageant. He was there the next morning and the next afternoon and the next night for the next round of the beauty pageant. He was still there the third day. He looked a little tired, serenely tired. He was there that afternoon when the biggest parade of all came through. He was there that night when they had the finals of the beauty pageant. He's gone the next day. He had to be in the state of Naroda. There's no way you could sit in meditation for three days in the midst of this chaos without just basically turning off all the sensory inputs. It was, it was quite inspiring. So that's the higher jhanas. Any questions or comments? No, there is perception. There's perception that you are in a state where there's nothing to perceive. So you perceive that your mind is in the state that has no characteristics. So it's not non-perception. It's neither perception nor non-perception. Get to the seventh jhana. I'll give you the instructions and then it'll make sense. Otherwise, you're never going to figure it out because words cannot possibly explain it. Um, Back in fifth. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You need to get the expansion out pretty far before the space shows up. So, you know, expanding out to Newton Abbott's not going to do it. Right? You've got to get beyond the horizon. And then it will appear. I think what I could say is that How far you expand before the space appears is probably dependent upon how concentrated you are. If you have really good concentration, then the space will appear 
sooner before you've expanded it any further. The less concentration, the less vivid this infinite space appears. I think that's really about all I can say. Uh, I never know whether it's going to show up for me as off-white or as black. You know, it just seems to have a mind of its own, which it's going to be. When I'm doing the expansion, that is into blackness. And sometimes that's just what becomes the space. And sometimes I'm doing the expansion and then suddenly the whiteness appears. That's more dramatic. Um, Generally, the times when it's appeared most strongly, it's been off-white and I've had really good concentration. I think that's the best I could say about it. Yeah. In actuality, you don't go from jhana 1 to jhana 2, jhana 2 to jhana 3 when you're doing it intentionally. You may, when you're sitting there, you're hanging out in 2 and it just sort of slides off into 3. There's not any break. But when you're in 2, if you're going to move to 3 intentionally or you're going to move from 6 to 7 intentionally, there's a gap where you think, okay, now, here's what i got to do. And you're now letting go of the lower number jhana, and you're remembering what to do to get to the higher number, and you're getting it all set up, and you're doing it, and then, oh, there's the jhana. So there's, a, there's kind of enough of your kind of normal self still there. Right. Kind of... Yeah, exactly. The gap between four and five is a bigger gap. That's probably the hardest transition of all maybe more difficult than from zero to one. Um, and so there might, you, you come up out of four and you're not really technically in four, although your mind is very quiet and still. And now you're like getting whatever it is you're going to expand and you're starting the ex- feeling of expansion and so forth. And then it might be, might be a minute or two even before the infinite space appears that you've got to stay focused on the expansion. But the other ones, the gap is going to be much smaller, um, 10 seconds, something like that, as you move between them. But in that time, yeah, there's enough of you to think, okay, here's what I do. Right. No similes. What I gave you is just about all there is. Yeah, no similes, just this very bare bones description. What? Can you invent one? Oh, sure. <laughs> I would suggest, however, if you're going to invent one, you go there first. Oh, you mean me invent one? Oh, uh, well, the Grand Canyon with no bottom and no other side for five. Six, your mind is really big. Uh, seven, going into the basement and... It's dark and you can't tell what's there, but there's nothing. An eight, (laughs) no, I cannot invent one for eight. (laughs) And I haven't played around with number nine, so don't know about that. Do you feel that your concentration within normal daily life has improved with this practice? Is it something that sort of transfers? 
it's hard to tell because I've always had really good concentration. You know, it's, it's just been good all along. And so I didn't notice a big jump or anything like that, but I'm sure it has been useful. Um, I really, that's about all I can say. Uh, because I had very good concentration to to start with, it, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, that's why it was easy for me to learn this stuff, but I never noticed a big jump or anything. Probably, I don't remember anybody coming, you know, back to a retreat and going, yeah, my concentration really better in daily life. Um, but I would think that it would. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't have the statistics to back it up. Right, the sense of I keeps getting diminished the further you go. <clears throat> no, because because in the first one, there's all this pity and everything else, and you've had to let go to get into it, right? And now you calm down, you're happy. All right, this is good, I'm happy. And then you're very contented, right? And then there's a quiet stillness, and you haven't really noticed that as you move one, two, three, four, <clears throat> the sense of me has just sort of receded into the background and gotten quite smaller. And then if you move on into five, six, seven, eight, the sense of me is diminishing even more and more. But it was pretty small to start with. So it's not like you're going along and then suddenly there's no you. It's, it's been fading out. And since it's just an illusion in the first place, it's not a big deal. If you stumble into one of these unexpectedly, though, then the shock of going from the normal me to this very weird state where am I, what's going on, yeah, it can be quite a blow to the ego. That's why the people freak out when they stumble into seven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One moment becomes the other. Would that kind of level of concentration when turning the mind to observing your experience, would, would it be apt to, to see the discontinuity of consciousness, for example? It's possible. If you're concentrated enough, then you do start to experience that. But just because you got to seventh jhana doesn't necessarily mean that you will experience that. What it will probably be required would be to enter the jhanas and then do the practice of a noticing, arising, and passing. Okay, so you then just open up your senses and notice whatever is arising and passing. The crows are starting to sing, right? Someone sneezed. 
That was a rising and a passing. Right? An itch appears on your nose. That's an arising. The crows just got quiet. There's a passing. The itch went away. So you're just noticing arising and passing. When the bell rings, when you're doing your walking meditation, you're noticing arising and passing. When you're eating, you're noticing arising and passing. So now your mind is getting finely tuned to impermanence and starting to see in more and more subtle ways things coming and going and being discontinuous. If you stay with that practice long enough and continue to recharge your ability by entering the jhanas and getting very concentrated, then it's quite possible that you might see the discontinuity and that it, it's, your mind is flicking from thing to thing as opposed to it being as smooth as it normally appears. Where does that come in? Well, the idea is that you're doing these insight practices and you are seeing what's really going on out there, taking this insight into impermanence. So you're looking at the arising and passing. And you're starting to see that, yeah, everything is pretty impermanent. Nothing is as solid as it appears. In fact, if you really get into this practice, eventually you get to the place where you're more noticing the passings than the arisings. Everything's starting to fade away. Right? This can get quite freaky. Okay? Everything that you were counting on to provide security, uh, it's all impermanent and you can see it right now. That can be very freaky. This can lead to, well, there's a stage called contemplation of terror. (laughs) The good news is if you've been practicing the jhanas, the terror is not as bad. It's just like, oh, here's another freaky state. More contemplation of serious disquietude rather than terror. But nonetheless, it's enough to really sort of set you back. Give you a sense that the world is not as dependable as you thought it was. Give you a different perspective, a deep insight into impermanence. If you go to the beach, a beach that's got sand, not rocks. You have sandy beaches in this country? Yeah, okay, good. All right? And you take a little kid with you and you build a sandcastle, right? Really nice sandcastle. And then a big wave comes along and wipes out the sandcastle. Do you get upset? Are you freaked out? The kid might be. The kid's crying, oh, the sandcastle. But you know better. You know it is the nature of sandcastles that they are impermanent. And when it exhibits that impermanence, it doesn't freak you out. I got news for you people. It's all sandcastles, every bit of it, okay? So now you've gotten deep enough into the impermanence, you're seeing the fading away nature of everything, enough that it gets pretty freaky, and you see it's all sandcastles. When you see that clearly enough, you see that not only there's nothing that is worth grabbing hold of and hanging on to, craving, there's nothing that can be grabbed hold of and hung on to. You build a big sandcastle, you don't think, oh, this is great, we'll put it in the boot of the car and take it home, right? You know, you can't do that. It's just a sandcastle. So that tendency to crave, 
because it's seeing now very clearly there's not anything that can be held on to. So the, in, the, the impetus to let go is finally there. And so maybe you actually will let go. Let go a little, you get a little peace. Let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. Let go completely, Nibbana. So, that's the plan. <laughs> All right? Probably going to take more than a 10-day course. Well, you can have the jhanas instead. Take them home. Practice them. Get good. Come on a longer course. But with a very concentrated mind, you start seeing reality. You start seeing the impermanent nature of things and or you start seeing the ultimately unsatisfactory nature of things or you start seeing the empty nature of things to such an extent that the tendency to grasp and crave is actually, it backs off. And there may be that possibility of truly, truly letting go. And if you can let go enough, then you experience without an experiencer. There's not a sense of self. And you realize, oh, this sense of self, that's just an illusion. That's just like the edge of the world. It's not really there. You penetrate the illusion deeply enough and you no longer conceive of the self. Just like you don't conceive of the edge of the world anymore. If you don't conceive of a self, there's no basis for selfish action. Therefore, there's no greed. There's no hatred. And the delusion has been uprooted. Nibbana, once again. That's a long answer to that question. Um, these states of mind, the, the, the higher channels as you describe them, I think similar states of mind in other traditions like mystical Christianity yes. are seen as pointing on themselves insights and pointing to some deeper reality like the existence of God, oneness with God, and perhaps in other traditions they're seen as pointing to the ultimate reality as being non-dual. Mm-hmm. What you're saying, I understand it is that in this tradition they're not seen as insights or retiring beyond themselves at all but are, are concentration techniques as a warm up to the real insights that would be the way that I interpret it yes that's correct you can find other teachers of the jhanas who would interpret it that these states are actually something external that you are experiencing an infinite consciousness In the Tibetan tradition, which comes out of the Mahayana Yogacara tradition, they have the Alaya Vijnana, the storehouse consciousness. I'm not going to go into all the concepts involved there, but okay, let's say that they postulate a universal consciousness and that when you're in the sixth jhana, that you actually have tapped into this externally existent thing. So there are teachers that would say these do represent actually something beyond. My interpretation is that you have set up a stable pattern in your brain. That's why it doesn't go away. You can absorb into it. And that stable pattern is experienced, perceived as infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothingness. So that's my interpretation. But you can find the other one if you find, you know, poke around for enough teachers. I think what I'm, 
who have enjoyed purpose isn't, is, is the instruction is very much so. I also in, have enjoyed very much what I described as the demystification of the terms. Yeah, there's nothing really that mysterious about them. They're eight altered states of consciousness brought on by concentration that are very useful, but not mysterious. You know, in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, we have lots of bridges, Golden Gate Bridge, Bay Bridge, right? And they're toll bridges. And I like to say, I drive up to the toll taker on the Bay Bridge, and I tell him, I can do all eight jhanas, and he lets me across for just $4. <laughs> You know, that's the regular price. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're not a big deal, but they're a useful deal. Yeah. Okay. The, the fourth one, what? The fourth jhana. Is... Uh, yeah, but really the experience when it's deep is a sense of really quiet stillness. But there is, when there's the brightness of the light, there is some energy there. But it's quite different than the energy of the first jhana. And so it does seem, even with the bright light, it seems down from the earlier ones. At least that's the way it felt to me. And more enclosed. If there's more light, well, the light doesn't matter. The energy, yeah, if it's got inner, it, it should be a quiet stillness. So if there's too much energy there, if, if if it's more energetic than the third, see if you can tone the energy down. Uh, let go of the light if that helps to bring the energy down. The light will come on its own if the concentration is deep enough. If you try and make the light, that may bring up the energy. Okay, and you said you had more questions? Can you say again? I'm having trouble hearing you. The 16 steps, stages of insight? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. The knowledge of fear, which is uh, six in the 16, I think, is the knowledge of, it's the fear that arises when you see it's all sandcastles. And so it's not related to the jhanas. The jhanas are there the seven stages of purification and the 16 insight knowledges. The jhanas would be in the second stage of purification and these 16 insight knowledges would cover the stages three, four, five, six, and seven. Okay? So the jhanas are before the 16 stages of insight. And they are the preparation work so that you can do the insights. 
And then these 16 stages of insight are spread over the last five of the purifications. I can show you a book on that. Okay. And you had another question? And what? Undetached equanimity. No, because the... Oh, okay, no. The signless liberation is the liberation through impermanence. So there's the desireless liberation. This is insight into dukkha. Everything is dukkha, nothing to desire. There's the signless liberation. This is insight into impermanence. Everything is falling apart. There are no solid things, nothing, no sign that you can grab hold of. And the third liberation is anatta, the empty, emptiness liberation. Uh, And that's seeing the selfless nature. So a deep understanding of anatta. Naroda is Naroda's like deep dreamless sleep. There's nothing going on. It is possible. Hmm. All right, there are three ways to get enlightened. All right, the first way is the way that Sariputta got enlightened, and that's to gain enough insight into either anicca, dukkha, or anatta that you're willing to let go have the experience of not-self, all right? So that's the way we're working on with our insight practice. So insight is the first way and the most common way. A second way, the Buddha, remember, he did the jhanas and then he practiced the supernormal power of remembering past lives and then the supernormal power of seeing beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma. And then he was able to formulate the Four Noble Truths and Dependent Origination. So apparently he was able from having the experience of remembering past lives and seeing beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma to gain enough insight through these supernormal states that he gained enlightenment. So practicing these two is the second way. The third way, which isn't mentioned very often and may be the way that Mahamogalana, the other chief disciple of the Buddha, got enlightened, is to enter the state of Naroda and then upon returning from it, there's some way you get enlightened, but I don't remember the details and I certainly don't know how to do it. But it could possibly be related to the signless liberation because, yeah, you've been in a state and there were certainly no signs, no perception of anything. But I'm, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't have a good source at hand to to see. Um, Sorry. Mm-hmm. So the, the concentration that I understand in association with the jhana 
I wouldn't say it's effortless, but it's not the same sort of efforting if you're playing chess or something like that. The samadhi would be best translated as non-distractedness, but you you've got to you've got to put in some diligence, all right? But it needs to be relaxed. So when you're trying to get to access concentration. You're putting your attention on your breath. That takes a little bit of effort. You're recognizing you're distracted and you're willing to let go of it and bring the attention back. So there's a bit of effort there. It's not effortless. you still got to do the work. And it's that kind of efforting. Not a lot. Once the concentration is really strong, though, you can stay in the state effortlessly. Right? You, you move into it with a minimal amount of effort and then you relax into it and you become absorbed into the state when the concentration is really strong. If the concentration is not really strong, but strong enough that you can experience the state, it may take a bit of effort to hold it. You, you've got to sort of keep your attention on the contentment of the third jhana. But it's not a lot of effort. It's not the effort of playing chess or something like that. I suppose the, I mean, I associate things like playing chess and so on as effort associated with a drive for success. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that that's what I have to kind of put aside. Mm-hmm. Correct. The effort is still there, but the drive for success has to be put aside. Right, the drive to success has to be put aside, and it's if I'm if I'm playing chess or some other game, I'm really, you know, there's there's a furrowed brow associated with it, and with this is a more of a relaxed, but there's still the diligence of you know really being there. You know, this is what comes next. I need to do this. Need to stay with that. It, it, but it doesn't have the the planning associated with it, or the analyzing, or any of those sort of thing. I mean, it's it's a one pointed effort, and it's more about diligence than striving. I think that's the best way I could put it. Right. Whereas in playing chess, there isn't. I mean, you could. I mean, I'm sure you could get into jungle playing chess. You could have full of methods and square. I mean, you're playing with probably. I thought was that there is no unskillful thought in the process of concentration that will lead to clicking the sutta. Right. You've got to get the hindrances out of the way. And so you're in a very positive state. Right. And, and it's a limited set of states that you experience. I mean, once you hit the first jhana, you know, there's not much else you're going to experience except, okay, unification of mind, inner tranquility, uh, imperturbability, mindfulness, clear awareness, uh, equanimity, and then the four higher jhanas, those states. So, yeah, it's a very limited and very positive states, right? Right. And then uh, 
also something about other consciousness on the side. Can you please explain? Well, the movement to the sixth jhana is to become conscious of your consciousness of the space. Like, you know, can you become conscious of the brown object? Now, can you become conscious of your consciousness of the brown object? Can you become aware of your awareness? All right, so that's the trick for moving into the sixth. Sometimes when the sixth stabilizes and there's this consciousness, in the fifth I said that there's a small observer observing a big space before them. In the sixth, the observer and observe are the same. So it's the big consciousness conscious of the big consciousness, right? As it settles in, that's what's there. And then there's just the big consciousness and not so much a sense of an observer. And sometimes what also appears is little consciousnesses down here or over there. It's just sort of like, you know, instead of stars or bubbles, there's little consciousness. This is what it feels like. It's your own consciousness. Yeah, it's still your own consciousness. It just seems like there's others there. Mm-hmm. Um, is, um, Aya Kemal, she, she taught me kind of uh, official mastery of the jhanas before moving one to the other. Or do you teach yourself any kind of official again mastery? Well, for learning them, what I like to say is you should be able to get into them and maintain a jhana for 10 minutes. That was what she was saying, you know. When you, not the first, the first is too much energy, you know, you can calm that down. But when you get to the second, are you able to stabilize it and stay with that for 10 minutes? That's probably good enough, and then you can move on to the next. But not the full mastery that's discussed, say, in the Vasudhimaga, where you can enter it at will from a normal state and jump to any other jhana. That sort of mastery comes after you've learned them all. And as you get more, as you practice them more and more, then you begin to get more of that mastery. But just being able to enter the state and hold it for 10 minutes is the kind of mastery you want for moving on to the next one. No, some people will equate it. I'm not equating it. I'm not even buying the storehouse consciousness. <laughs> because presumably there would be a lot of content with that. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Describing one or two little bits of consciousness that don't have stories, content, and stuff. Right. Yeah, the storehouse consciousness could be considered uh, the universal consciousness. And you would think it would have everything in it, and if you tapped into it, it might be kind of noisy. But, you know, I'm a Madhyamakist, I'm not a Yogacharian. And so I don't buy the storehouse consciousness. And I think that the sixth jhana is just an experience that we interpret as an infinite consciousness as opposed to actually being an infinite consciousness.